Welcome to this episode of Willosophy. Uh, we love Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson. That's me. I'm the host of the show. My name's in the title. You probably downloaded this because I told you to. Uh, not because I told you to. That's a weird way to start. Because I suggested that you might enjoy it. Anyway, wait, let's, this is not a good way to start. Actually, this is a very Pinky Beecroft way to start. And th- that's who today's episode is. This was uh, originally the third episode of Willosophy that I recorded. Uh, I'm posting all the old episodes before we get to the new episodes in the new year. Um... Uh, go back and listen to those episodes if you want to hear what the podcast is about um, or, you know, just dip in now and uh, discover it for yourself. Uh, I think I probably mentioned that there's no intro music. I've added intro music, but I've left the podcast how they are. So, uh, look, Pinky is one of my uh, people I've known for 15 years. And, uh, look, I can't say that we're, you know, best friends or anything like that, but we always enjoy chatting and catching up and we loved having this chat at his house. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do another one soon. Uh, So here he is, uh, Pinky Beecroft. Check out his stuff. Look him up. uh, Check out his music. He was in a great band uh, called Machine Gun Fellatio, which is probably what he's most famous for. We barely even got to that. That's that's a story for another time. I just wanted to know him, the man, and that's what the podcast is really about. Uh, if you want to come and see me, January 19, the last night of the Illuminati tour is at the Sydney Opera House, the concert hall. Uh, two shows, 7.30, 9.30. We're filming it all for a DVD. Uh, Justin Hamilton is doing support. It's the first time I've played the concert hall, main hall by myself, so it's going to be a massive show. And then my free will tour, my tour for next year, is on sale already in Adelaide, Brisbane, and uh, Melbourne. Starts March 2 in Adelaide, so... Not that far away, so uh, if you enjoy me or if you want to come out and say that, that would be really cool. Um, okay, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this podcast with the fabulous Pinky Beecroft. And oh, uh, once again, a big thank you to uh, Nick at St. Hugh's, uh, for, or St. Hugh, I see I haven't even looked it up yet. I've got to look it up. In fact, I should look it up right now and see if I can find the information. Let's see if I can find the information that I need, um, and then I can actually give him a proper, uh, you know, a proper uh, little uh, plug here. Uh, let's see. What does it say here? Do I have uh, any information? No, no, I don't. This is how good I am at doing this sort of thing. Uh, so I appreciate that you're uh, uh, tuned in because this is clearly a terrible way to be starting the podcast. Uh, anyway, I'll find out and I'll put it on another podcast. But we have music and thank you to Nick who provided the music. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Cheers. Welcome to Willosophy. Um, I didn't know how to start this podcast because I haven't really, I didn't really think it through. And what I've been doing is talking to the guest before I introduce who the guest is. And today, when I was coming over to talk to you, a uh, guest who hasn't spoken yet, um, I decided that I was going to do a new thing at the start of the podcast, but it's particularly relevant to the first question I want to ask you. So what I'm going to ask my guests to do is introduce themselves. Who Hi. are you? I don't know. I can't even answer that question simply. I guess I'm Pinky Beecroft for today. <laughs> And you are a man who has, well, has, like, you know, you weren't born Pinky Beecroft, though, right? Depends, who is Pinky depends Beecroft? Depends who you ask. Well, that's, I mean, Pinky I think that's a good place for us to start because okay. there's something interesting about you? that, isn't it? It's sad when you hit this age being unable to answer the question, who are you? Um, but it's not, is it, is it because you don't know who you are yourself or it's because you have several, like, incarnations of who I you have are? several incarnations of myself and because... 
because the stupidest thing I ever did was come up with the name Pinky Beecroft. That's, <laughs> if I have one regret in my life, that's it. It's the worst name I've ever heard and it's just been the bane of my existence. And every time, like at least once every six months, I go, okay, I'm not bound to be Pinky Beecroft ever again. That's it. I've had enough and I don't want that character on to walk the earth anymore. And then I'll, for example, try and book a show somewhere to play with the band or whatever, and they'll go, what are you calling yourself today? And I go, I'm calling myself, you know, whatever. And they go, yeah, all right. And then I arrive, and it just says Pinky Beecroft in huge letters. And I go, okay. And uh, even my family sometimes just calls me Pinky, so... I don't know. Well, I, I feel like in the whole time we've known each other, because I met you as yeah, Pinky. I've been Pinky, so I might as well. And a lot of people are like that. A lot of people are like, I only know you as that. So, take me. That. Well, can can you take me back to the origin story of Pinky? Can you remember, like, when was it that you came up with the name Pinky, and and where did it come from? Pinky Beecroft was a guy, the real Pinky Beecroft. Yeah. I've never told anyone this story. Here we go, good. Pinky Beecroft. That's what we like. The real guy was a guy who came to my brother's 21st. And my brother is 15, 16 years older than me, so I would have been four, gone on five. And I was raised in a very strict religious fundamentalist family. Oh, okay. I hadn't seen a party before this. Where is this? Where, where, what part of the world is is this? Cogra in Sydney. Clive James has stolen it from me, so I can't be (laughs) the boy from Cogra, which is really boring. But, you know, for those of you unacquainted with it, it's just a – it was then. I don't know now because I haven't really been back, but it was just – it's in the dictionary as the definition of shithole. It's just like it's not even like it just it was just the dullest place in the world. It was like I don't know. It wasn't even blue collar enough to be completely blue collar, but it was it was just shithole. And how much of your life uh, was spent in Cogra? Like how how long were you you know the boy from Cogra? Well, the second boy from Cogra, the other boy from Cogra. I was born there, and then I. Grew up there and uh, it's a weird story. I got shunted off to boarding school when I was 11 and a half, 12, and then I never really went back much, um, not even for school holidays. I didn't like it much. I thought it was brutal and weird. I went back to see my parents um, but yeah, it was. I can't think of anything interesting. Much I find well, I know I find that in itself interesting because I think that you know part of where you're from can define you. But also, I met a lot of people who don't want to go back to where they're from, yeah. and that's what's defined them. Yeah, and I guess that might have defined me. I don't know. I I had older siblings. The closest sibling to me was ten years older, nine and a half years older, and there are a lot of them. There were four of them, but they were. Adults, yeah. you know, when I came along, practically, I don't know if you can call a 10 year old an adult, but they were, they seemed like adults from where I was looking when I was one or two, and they seemed incredibly glamorous and exotic and interesting and great, and maybe they were. Um, some of them still are. And, <laughs> and you go, I want to hang out with adults. And I thought only adults existed till I was five and right. then got shoved to school. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing here? This is awful. There are children. There are children all around me and I can't stand it. And, and my brother, 
particularly the one closest to me, he was the kind of guy who came home every afternoon from school from the time I was born and said, you've got to do this. I learnt this at school today. You do this. I'm in year nine. You do this now. I know you too, but you do this. This is called trigonometry and stuff like that. So by the time I hit kindergarten, I was like, oh, one times tables, for God's sakes. Get me out of here. It was just disastrous. And I was so bored and it was very... There wasn't a lot going on, you know. There were 65 kids in my kindergarten and a deaf nun in charge. And I remember the first week all we did was scribble on newspaper while she ran around belting kids for reasons I couldn't really discern. And that sort of set the tone for the next six years. So tell me then. There was a point I was going to make. I can't remember what it was. That's okay. It's a rambly conversation. We'll oh, get back yeah. to it. I wanted to do everything that my siblings did. Oh, okay. And I think my parents, by the time I was eight or so, went, I don't know how healthy this is. He's smoking now because he's eight. <laughs> and he's, you know, when I saw my... So I'm eight, so my brother's 17 and a half, 18, and I'm watching him listen to Bob Marley and smoke and play cards yeah. with a hat on and long hair. And I thought, that's what i got to do now. So, yeah, I got shunted away. Now, so how does going to boarding school change the the boy? Boarding school was terrifying on a whole different level. I'd gone to this Marsh Brothers school, which was in Cogra, which had 1,100 kids in a playground the size of my kitchen and no trees and just quite brutal, violent sort of thing. There were five murderers in my brother's class at school. What? That's pretty weird, yeah. All the kids we grew up with all went to prison, died of heroin overdoses or killed people or killed themselves. It was just like that kind of hood. Right. And then I went to this sort of posh, in inverted commas, in huge inverted commas, boarding school full of country kids who were violent on a whole different level. They were sort of like... I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it was terrifying. And it was also run by Marsh Brothers, who are a violent group of people. They, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out about the Catholic Church at the moment about kids being buggered, but I felt it was... Nobody's spoken up about how much violence there was. Right. It was, it was a lot about let's... Let's beat the shit out of these kids and let's encourage them to beat the shit out of one another. It feels like already like a theme that has come through the story of growing up in Cogra and also going away to boarding school is your observations of violence. Yeah. Like that you were surrounded by violence. Mm. So what sort of – when, when it comes to violence, how do you respond to violence? Like, it you freaks know, me out. Yeah. I, I came from a very violent family. My mother was very violent. I don't mean that in any disrespect. I love my mum and I shouldn't be saying it publicly. In fact, I withdraw that statement. But she was handy with a saucepan when you'd done something wrong and my brothers had kind of made a pact to try and kill each other. It was less a childhood than an ongoing attempt to just wipe out your competitors. And actually remember... Ironically, in a religious family, it was survival of the fittest. Yeah. I remember lying in wait for my brother 
who was closest in age to me on the garage for three and a half hours after school one day with a piece of 4B2. And as he came up the drive, I saw him and I thought, this is it. And as he came through the gate, I leapt off the garage roof and started to beat on him with this piece of wood and really try and kill him. I thought, this is the day I kill him. This is a normal day in my family. Wow. And... <laughs> And there was this is the moment. sort of generation that going away to the Hunger Games would be seen as yeah. a positive vacation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I remember this moment. I still remember it where I realised that I could kill him. I realised I was close to my dream of actually wiping him out forever in this ongoing war between the two of us. And I balked for a second. I blinked and I thought, God... Because I'd almost the week before killed the kid across the road by stabbing him in the head with a dart and I'd got into enormous trouble for that. Mm. And so I, there was this, this thing <laughs> that surprisingly held me enough. Back. <laughs> there was this thing that held me back. It was the double, mur- double homicide right. beef that I was facing. <laughs> you were already up on charges. Yeah. <laughs> you were like, yeah. I'm going down for this one. Yeah, but I remember the look in his eyes like, ha. Ah. You were done. I've got you. And, of course, he well, I was. He just flipped me over and, and, and probably beat the shit out of me. I don't know. But it was... How does that uh, affect you, uh, like, ongoing? Do you make a decision at some point in your life where you're like, this is not a life that is for me, I don't want to be around this, or over your life have you found yourself being attracted to violent things no, because of that? I think the first. I think I go, oh, there's got to be another way to do things, you know? think that's been my motto since I've been born. There's got to be some other, there's got to be an alternative to this. Okay, so that's situation. I mean, that's a very nice place for us to get to the idea of like a philosophy and, you know, asking you, do do you have one? Like Mm -hmm. when I asked you the question and said, can you do the podcast? Like, did something immediately come to mind? What was the process you went through? A lot of things that are very me. Like I thought of the first five answers I thought of were totally smart ass. Right. (laughs) Decided that, what did I think? Uh, Try not to come first. That was my... (laughs) It's actually pretty good advice. Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like that will actually be better advice than some of the advice we get given on this. ladies appreciate it. I think um, in general people appreciate it. I mean, obviously, if you're both trying not to come first, then eventually you, you turn into sting and you're having sex for like three days in a row and you might need to just make an yeah. agreement that yeah. I'll come first tonight yeah. and you can come first tomorrow night and we can even this shit out. Yeah. Or, you know, add the proviso of if you do, own up to it and right. have a good time and enjoy yourself. But Maybe um, it's more like don't come alone, yeah. you know? <laughs> don't be the person, don't be the only one who's coming. I used to have a T-shirt when I was in the band that said in big letters, come quietly. And <laughs> I used to wear it everywhere. <laughs> and people would look at me and you used, you always see them do the second look. There was the first look and then there was the second look. Oh, I think mean, that might be dirty, Doris. How uh, important a role does sex play in your life? The, the, the first one's like, you know, the first thing you went to, even in a comedic way, was sex. Do you, like when, you know, Machine Gun Fellatio certainly had like, you know, a lot of like the stuff is about sex. Is sex a big theme in your life or yeah. is it? Yeah, it was huge. Uh, it was huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all I ever thought about, really. Um, Do you think part of that is because uh, I imagine if you said you were raised in a religious household, I imagine it wasn't like openly talked about when you were young. God, no. 
And I look at today's generation and I feel sorry for them a bit because I think, gee, you never knew, you'll never know what it was like for it to be totally, utterly forbidden and just unknowable. It's made it very exciting. I've spoken about this before, but the first time I ever saw a naked woman, and I mean actually like, I was about to say inside a naked woman. I wasn't like looking inside to see who I was like with a torch or a miner's helmet or something. But the first time that I saw the bits, you know, other than a full frontal nude, you know, full bush, full frontal nude, which is what what porn was in my day. The first time I saw a naked woman was the first time I saw a naked woman. Whereas I don't think there's any kid of this modern generation that is going to be able to say that. Unless they haven't seen, you know, video hits or whatever video hits is nowadays. Um yeah, it was a bit like that. So did, where did this discovery of like the intoxication of sex as a subject come from? Was it boarding school? Is that where it started to become a thing? Or because you had older siblings, was it introduced earlier? Or can you remember where it came from? Yeah, Eddie Thomas told me when I was eight about it. And I was fascinated. And we went, this is a weird story. I don't know if I've got anybody in this either. But we were watching, we were smoking. We were about eight, going on nine, and we were smoking in the – this is weird too. We were in the girls' school down the road from our school. That's right. where we decided to smoke. <laughs> yeah, like, sure. Let's go to another school because we're stupid, <laughs> but in our school uniforms. And we were, but we were smoking. I think it was on a, after school or something. I just remember us sitting there, and we looked across, and there was a guy with big tats on his arms lying down in the on the kind of – grass field near the back of my house with a girl with a really hot girl and we were looking at them and having a cigarette and eddie said he's fingering her and i went he's what and he said they're finger fucking and i went oh and then i thought right and you know when you're a kid and you're with your mate i went yeah 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 and i think i may have said i think someone with us said that's not finger fucking and I went, well, I think it is. <laughs> no, really, you know, well, I think it is. Yeah, it's you know, an expert. I might, yeah. but I know what's gone down right. here. They're finger fucking. Yeah. And then I raced home and went, what is finger fucking? What does that mean? Whatever it is, I've got to do it immediately. Yeah. But I was eight. And there's not a lot of people who let you finger fuck them when you're eight. No, no and that seems appropriate. It doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> I... <laughs> I would have said that. <laughs> I was very sex obsessed for a long time before I was allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how controversial that is to say because you're not really supposed to talk about that sort of shit today. You're not supposed to say, well, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment. I read in the papers this debate about kids being sexualized yes. in the media. And I think I don't want to get into this because. This sounds like a hotbed of shit I don't need to be involved in. But I was sexualized way younger than than just through my own, like, I don't know, raging. I mean, I remember us talking in the playground when I was 10, 9, about fucking and finger fucking and fingering and kissing chicks and doing stuff to girls and thinking... Jesus, it's going to be a long, dry season of not getting any if I've got to wait till I'm, what, 18 or something? This is insane. I'll go crazy. And I kind of did. It was years. 
of trying to convince people. (laughs) So, yeah. And when you could, it was so mind-blowing because, you know, the Catholic religion that I'd been raised in is very screwy when it comes to all that stuff. There's a lot of sex in the Bible, but none of it's very nice sex. It's all with horses and people's daughters and stuff and... It's all disgusting. So you're raised with this idiocy about the whole deal, which I think is quite disturbing. So how long did uh, religion play a role in your life? Oh, God. I kind of, the moment Eddie said that, when I was eight and a half, I was pretty much done <laughs> with done. religion. Cheers. Sorry, Jesus. Yeah, sorry, I'm all Jesus. up for finger-fucking yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't, that be a good bu- Wouldn't that be a good bumper sticker? Sorry, Jesus, I'm up for finger-fucking <laughs> Um, Jesus is just up there looking down. We've lost another one. Yeah. We've lost another one to yeah. finger fucking. Oh, really? Yeah. I just, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's a, I, think, I think there's two types of people. I think there's those that question shit all the time and there's those that don't question a lot of stuff. And I was firmly in the former camp and none of it, it just, it didn't seem to make sense to me, a lot of it. And whenever I asked a question, like a genuine, serious question, and look, a lot of this has got to do with my face, but and I know I shouldn't say that on a podcast. I'm sorry for those stern. My face looks like, but I've got a face, apparently, I've been told, that looks like it's taking the piss when it's generally not. And every time I asked a question, I just got sent to the headmaster's office who said, all right, you being a dickhead again. I was like, mm, no, I was asking a genuine question about... But they don't want people asking questions because there is no sensible answers. There aren't. And you either believe in it without asking or you ask and go, God, I just can't get anywhere. And I, look, and there is a difference in that. And I do see people... Like, I mean, I think there's, there is a certain sort of person who looks for structure and looks for rules and, you know... Even in, in their job or their life, they go, I, I'm gonna, I want to work for this person and I'll obey these rules and I'll follow these Ten Commandments and that is what the mystery of life is about. I've put some uh, rules on it and now I can handle getting up in the morning and know what I'm meant to do. I think the other path, the one that you say, the questioning path, the one that is yeah. almost without answers, can be a much more difficult path. Oh, hallelujah to that. I, I, the only people I'm really jealous of on this earth are the people who are the former who right. can just get up in the morning and go, okay, I'm just going to follow it now. I mean, if I could follow the path to the gate, I would have followed it. I just... Because there's comfort in that. Well, yeah. Well, there seems to be. Yeah. There's at least uh, no, the promise of comfort in that, you know. I totally agree with you. And, and a strength on some levels. But it's also what's fucked up the world. Right. So, I mean, there look, is that. It small, has its downsides. There is that small downside. If this was an ad for pharmaceuticals, there would be 25 seconds now of all the things that have gone wrong. Yeah. By the way, Mayfoot calls yeah, yeah, wars yeah. against different yeah, countries, yeah. deaths yeah. throughout the ages. Exactly. But, you know. <clears throat> all right. So did you replace um, yeah, being a curious person? That normally means that you, you probably didn't replace religion with something. You know, did you look for some other, you know, oh, yeah. theory on how to live, yeah. live your life? I don't know. No, not really. Not in a way that I see a lot of modern people do. And I like the way I refer to them as modern, modern people. Modern people? So I'm not of some other era, but I kind of am now. Um, I see a lot of people younger than me looking for stuff in a much more interesting way than I did. I think I just went and got out of it 
for 30 years. I think that's what I did. I kind of went, okay, I'm going to go and get off my face and and probably try not to think about it. And that's a mistake, I think. So you do you, you think you, you wish you were more engaged in the idea of... Because it sounds to me like you said, well, this is like this is what I've been told is the real world, is not of interest to me at all. So instead I'm just going to go and not you know, engage in this real world. Yeah, kind of. But you didn't not engage at all. It's not like you went to, you know, oh. lived out, out in the middle of a desert or something, is My it? My brother did. That's what he did. He's got a Robinson Crusoe complex. We all responded in different ways, the whole family, and that's how he kind of responded. I, I'm bipolar about most things, and so part of me goes, right, I don't want to engage, and then the other half of my head goes, let's engage a thousand percent. I, I guess, I don't know what I did. I sort of, also I think the thing that, that is relevant here is that people say I rejected this or rejected that it's not as though you wake up one day and you go right i'm fully completely shunk it's a long weird lifelong process of wrestling with it even when you feel like you're safe you're not you do you know what i'm saying i do know it's a long process of like i remember things that i thought when i was 18 and i cringe now i just go wow you were still bound up with weird notions of of stuff it's about following the herd really and your instincts to follow the herd are incredibly strong like it's a strong instinct to do what everybody else is doing because it just that if that how can they all be wrong that's got to be the right thing to do so you kind of go a bit that way but you don't Okay, well, that brings us back. So we talked about your first of your jokey suggestions when I asked yeah. you the topic. Did you actually come up with – what happened next? Did you come up with something serious? I guess that's my serious one. Try just to be always wary of running with the herd and try not to. Try not to run with the herd if you possibly can carve your own path out. Well, that seems like – I mean, to me, that seems like a very solid uh, piece of advice. I mean, the thing that, that comes I come back to all the time is that uh, Steve Jobs uh, quote where he talked about it not being the customer's job to come up with what was next. It's the yeah, creative person or yeah, the person who's going out there on their own. It's their job. Oh, well, in yeah. his case, probably his job to tell someone else to come up with it. Well, but... his name's Job. Right. It's <laughs> a terrible joke. But he, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he said an awful lot of tosh as well. Oh, no, no, no. And he also died because he didn't want to, uh, you know, use modern medicine to treat his yeah. disease. So I'm, I'm not like, you know. I'm we're... wary of mantras. I'm wary of a lot of things. Okay. So that in itself is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So you don't subscribe and maybe partly because you were raised in a place where you are meant to subscribe to everything you know you're meant to subscribe to this yeah. religion yeah. then maybe you know you if you if you reject that you also reject the idea of you know wanting to subscribe to things whatever they are yeah I, i'm very wary of that's a really good way to put it and, and i think that uh i don't know black and white people freak me out because I don't think anything in the world is particularly black and white, and yet I can be the most black and white person on earth. So even that is not very – even my black and whiteness is grey. <laughs> but but, but you, you, you know what I mean? The religious thing was so hardcore fundamental that you go, oh, look, 
I don't like anybody who feels that passionately. Like if I have an overriding feeling in my life, it's ambivalence. I, but I'm interested in that because uh, for me, like, you know, I look at for – just to use religion as the example. Yeah, okay. I, I'm as annoyed by – the fundamentalist religious people as I am by the fundamentalist atheist people who bang on about God equally as much as the fundamentalist religious people. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I have like a bit of an issue with like that, that black and white position and I find grey a lot more fascinating. You know who bugs me? There's a thing on the back of all the cabs at the moment and it's an ad for a label uh, and I think it's Aussie Bums and the slogan, the advertising slogan is something along the lines of if you doubt yourself, wear something else. And I always look at it and think, fine, I'll fine. wear something yeah. else because I think self-doubt's very important. And I think the problem with the world at the moment is that everybody's trying to tell you, particularly advertisers, you know, be that person who has no self-doubts. And it's people who have no self-doubts who blow up the Twin Towers and who kill people and who rape people and who do the terrible things. They're the people who do stuff that's shit, the people with no self-doubt. And I've seen that so often and I think that if you're a half-decent person, you should have some self-doubt. So then how do you stop that doubt from paralysing you? Because there's, oh, there can be a difference between... Yes, I don't. Right. <laughs> but there can be a difference, right, between, you know, being, you know, having self, uh, being self-critical and having self-doubt and, and, and then not getting out of bed or doing anything because, you know, there's too much of it there. Well, yeah, I think... I mean, obviously there's a line here, but, but I think that you... I think there's a huge difference between the, there's this whole movement about you've got to have self-esteem and he had bad self-esteem and he had, you know, he had self-esteem issues, etc. Yeah. And people equate having self-esteem and self-doubt and this whole... I'm not explaining this. No, well, I mean, what I'll you're saying... I'll get to explain it, it in a minute. Yeah. I don't think that having uh, realistic... Knowing yourself is a very different thing to having extremely good self-esteem on the level that I see dickheads talking about it. I go, it's better to know who you are, know your strengths, know your weaknesses and just be comfortable with all of that. doesn't mean that you don't want to be a better person and don't strive to be. I think, you know, try not to be a fuckwit is not a bad motto right. in life. Just try not to be a fuckwit. It's really simple. Like if I had a kid, that's what I'd say. That's, live your life like that. Just get up in the morning. Try not to be a fuckwit today. Yeah. Mine, I think it, very go. similarly mine would be that, that sort of thing of just going, try not to fuck up other people's lives on purpose. Yeah. Like by the very or nature. even accidentally. But by the very nature of being a human being, I think that we have to allow that you know, some of what you're going to do fucks up other people's lives, right? Yeah, but but don't do it on purpose. I think you've got to go slightly more than don't do it. Okay, good, all right. I like it. It's a negotiation. The other night, I I live here, right? So I live on a busy road and there's always at night someone going past with a car stereo on at 60,000 decibels playing bad music. And I lie there and I think, okay, it's two in the morning. You've got your stereo cranked to 60,000 dBs. You don't give a shit about anybody, really. And I hear I sound like an old man. I do. But just turn the noise level down, dude. Cause like, right. But I count that as on purpose. 
Because I count that that's someone going out into the world being a fuckwit on purpose. I think it's someone who hasn't grown up at at all. Without regard of other people, though. Yeah, and I think that's a purposeful decision that you make, you know. I used to look at George W. Bush and I used to think, I used to feel jealous occasionally. What do you mean? I used to think, imagine not giving a shit on that scale. That's a huge grand right. scale to not give a fuck. Yeah. And you can argue with him. I oh, didn't do it on purpose. He just didn't really give a shit. But fuck, tell that to the people of name a country. Okay, you that's know, interesting. I that's like that. not giving a shit on a global scale. I don't really, and I think there's a lot of not giving a shit and there's a lot of, there's too much of I didn't do it deliberately, you know? The people who are fracking in, and want to frack all over Australia, they, they will tell you that, I, you know, I'm not deliberately screwing up. Water supply. The water supply for the universe. <laughs> right. It's just an unfortunate byproduct, right. but we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. Sure, your crops won't grow for 20 years. But. It's important. And you go, look, there's enough collateral damage in the universe and that's what you get when you accidentally don't give a shit and i think it starts this is gonna upset a lot of people but i think it starts with the person on the tram who has their ipod up too loud i think it starts with the with basic human politeness i think it starts with the guy outside my house at 2 30 in the morning with his stereo cranking i feel like going out there and going dude you're the reason that ends with people getting blown up and killed and bashed and raped because it's just people not really giving a fuck. No, no, I, I get that completely. I actually got a, a in my Jesus, what a what a pretentious rave. No, 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 but it makes sense because in the in my touring show this year, I got criticism one night from some dude who he, he liked the show and there was just one bit he said was just too light, too you know, like you know, every day. And it was when I talked about. I talked about two things. I talked about people who won't get off their phone in shops when they're you know, paying for their goods and services. Yeah. And the other one is people who like, are on their phone in the street when they're bumping yeah, and they're just getting in people's way because they're too busy like, looking down at their phone to walk. So right? everybody. So everybody yeah, though. Yeah. But we just all decided to do that. And it's yeah. made the world worse for all of us. Yeah, it has. And we all I have just done it. Well, yeah, no, I know a lot of people who don't do either of those things. Right, but I mean, I don't mean, and when I say we all, clearly I'm on stage complaining about these things, so I hope that I don't do these things as well, but but it's become accepted. Like, nobody looks at the person on the, well, some people probably look at them, I look at them this way, but nobody looks at the person on the phone in the street who's just got in their way and thinks, we've got to ban this, we've got to stop doing this. But it's weird, it's become accepted in some parts of the world. Right. You, you notice in LA it hasn't really become accepted. No, that's true that because stuff. people have guns. Nobody no, wants to get in the way. Really, really polite, <laughs> and maybe it is. Maybe it's the gun thing. But but they are so polite that it blows my mind. Yeah, right. And I like it. I liked living in LA for a while because people are so polite, and nobody does that sort of stuff. And in fact. Americans who've come here to visit me have gone, this is so rude. But, like, I would never do that in a shop. And it's weird because Americans have this reputation here by people who haven't been to America of being rude, loud, arrogant. I think Australians win hands down for all that stuff, you know. Yeah, Australians certainly, uh, we play stronger at home than away. And the Americans play stronger away than at home. You know, Americans can yeah. be loud and annoying and obnoxious when they're playing away from home. But yeah. in America, in their own environment, delightful. Mind you, the reason I left LA was because they were too polite in the end for me. And I started having meltdowns. What do you mean by that? 
I went to a sandwich shop and in <laughs> West Hollywood, as in you, you know that scene, yeah. I guess, and I was hanging up there and I went to this sandwich shop and the, it was a long queue, it was lunchtime and it was an average day and the woman in front of me said to me, the tuna baguette, what, 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 is, what is the tuna baguette? And he went, well... We, we serve an albacore tuna, which is like, and he explained what tuna was, and she said, in the baguette, he says, the baguette is a French kind of, it's like a breadstick, I can show you, and I went, oh, fuck, it's a tuna roll, if you, do you want, do you want it or not, fuck, there's 800,000 people behind you, and I found the politeness got to the level of rudeness, I was like, this is now rude, you're being right. so polite, you're rude, because there's right. 900 of us waiting, and it's lunch, and I have 10 seconds to get what I need and get back, and you're driving me crazy, and that night, I was in a bar with some Los Angelians, and... And we were in this bar and this girl at this crowded bar, you couldn't get served and, you know, everybody's waiting. This girl says, you Bloody Mary mix. What is that spicy? Is it a spicy Bloody Mary mix? And the bartender, I'm not kidding, kidding you, started explaining the level of spiciness in the Bloody Mary mix. And I thought in Australia she would be just ignored. It was just like, yeah, whatever, who's that person there? And... And she's barman would just push her aside, so right. everybody else. She'd be outside, and I had a meltdown in the in this bar. And you're right; everybody immediately goes, "Oh my god, what if he's got a gun?" So people just hit like the floor because I was going, <laughs> "Look, it's a bloody Mary. Do you want it?" In an Australian accent, and she was like, "Whoa!" Up against the wall, and the bar was, "Whoa!" And then, and then I was out of there on my ear a minute later. Uh. <laughs> So I thought that night, you're not suited to be here. You need to go somewhere where people are rude. You need to go back to, to Sydney immediately. <laughs> okay, so uh, you uh, go to boarding school. And uh, what happens after that? Do you finish school? Do you go to university? Yeah. What, what happens? Oh, look, I need to tell you a brief version of it. Um, otherwise, I'll bang on all day. It, it was a... I went to school, I didn't really fit in very well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Believe it or not, I made up my mind I wanted to go into the army after I left school because I could do two things. I could play rugby okay mm-hmm. and I, I – it's what, something what you said earlier of I, I now felt institutionalised and I wanted to go to another institution. Uh-huh. I thought – it would be fun. Believe right. it or not, I may be the only person who wanted to enlist in the army because I thought it would, it would be, be fun, fun to get into trouble right. and muck up a bit. Me and a friend of mine. Have some adventures. Yeah, it would be a laugh, a bit of a hoot. And then I won a scholarship to uni. Um, I, oh, this makes me out to be a real dickhead, but I, I, I studied Latin and Greek at school and I got a scholarship to study Latin and Greek at uni, right. and I'd been a scholarship boy to boarding school, and then I went and, I don't know, I don't even want to say this, I, I then got this geeky scholarship to uni, and I sort of, I didn't want to go, everybody said you'll go and do arts law, that's what you will do, yep. you don't want to do medicine, do you, do you want to do medicine? 
And I went, no, because I hadn't really done any science. I, was, I just wasn't interested. And so I, everyone said, right, well, you'll do arts law and then you will go to Oxford or Cambridge or wherever the fuck it was and you will be a, a professor of law and ancient things. Right. And I went, oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I thought, I will... I will be an actor instead. Maybe I'll go to NIDA. Mm. And then uh, a few things happened. I just, mostly I just wanted to leave school and leave home. Right. That was all I really wanted to do, just get out. And, in fact, I kind of moved out before the HSC. Uh, I told school that I was at home for Stuvac and I told home that I was at school. And I moved in with a 36-year-old psychiatric nurse in Surrey Hills. Right. Uh, whose name was Irene, and she changed my life a bit. I met her on Central Station, and <laughs> I'd gone home. Right. God, I never told anyone this story much either. I went home for study vac, and I hadn't spent a lot of time at home. I, I, my parents and I had a fraught relationship in my teens, uh-huh. and Dad, I don't want to slag my parents. Don't. But Dad was... Good at drinking. He was, that was his number yeah. one game. And he was the life of every party and he was the funniest guy I've ever met. He was right. hilarious and lived for entertaining. That was what he did. He was just an entertainer. He was fucking funny and quick and boozed to the eyeballs and was like being raised by Dean Martin. That's how I. Right. Yeah. Except funnier. And sort of more charming. Wow. Yeah. Than Dean Martin. Yeah. I mean, that's already a high bar, to be honest. He was the funniest, most charming man I've ever met. Wow. He was just hilarious and pissed as a nude. And, and where, what did he do? Like, was this part... He what in a factory in Guildford all his life. Right. Yeah. So, uh, that, do you feel like he did a job... That, you know, would he have been an entertainer? Would he have liked to do a job like that? Or he liked working in the factory and being this guy on the weekends and at home and that he sort of thing? He worked in a bottle merchants and part of his job was selling bottles to the wine makers to put their wine in. Mm. And so he spent most of his life up in the wineries schmoozing with the winemakers, right. getting on it. And getting booze. Filling up the bottles and then emptying them out again. Telling stories. Right. Yeah. So he enjoyed it. He loved his yep. life. He loved his work. He loved just being the dude and getting pissed and having a great time, which is great. And he was a good dad and he, like, I don't know, he had some drawbacks. Mm-hmm. Everyone in my school thought I was a weirdo but loved my dad. So on days when dad came to school, we'd be like dad (laughs) sitting with the other thousand kids hanging out and telling stories and me going, oh, I don't – I'll go over there and sit somewhere. You know, he was friends with guys that I didn't even know existed. It's like, dad, you know, I'm just going over to see your dad. Like, (laughs) okay. Right. And Dad had name-checked guys right. in my year, you know, when we were having arguments. And be like, how do you even know Vinnie Wall? I haven't spoken to Vinnie Wall in five years. How do you know him? Vinnie's a great guy. Love him. Hell of a sense of humour. just think, shit. My mum was Irish, Catholic, crazy, hard, hard, hard. Not hard, tough. Tough. Tough, tough as hell. Because he was like... 
everybody's best mate. Yeah. So mum was tough and terrifying and told me when I was five about hell and sort of said that's where you'll be gone if you're not careful. And so by seven I was pretty much convinced that was it for me, so I better have a good time before hell kicked in. Right. <laughs> so, you'd already done enough stuff that you definitely weren't yeah, getting into I'd, the other yeah, joint. You're like, exactly. oh, well. The shit she mentioned was like, God, I could really tell you. You're like, yeah. Wait till I start in on the finger fucking. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. You've just gone all in. You're yeah. like, I'm fine. Yeah, I was all in for mischief. And so, um, and so, yeah, it was a tough thing because you, if you went to mum about the smallest problem in the world, like I've left my cardigan at school, she might hit you over the head with a saucepan and try to kill you. Or she might go, what was your score in your religion exam? And come at it from a completely different angle. My mum was com- completely unpredictable right. in that way. So you didn't tend to go to her with anything. <laughs> I'm just going to keep everything secret from her. Yep. And dad just made a joke out of everything. So, for example, when a Marsh brother, when I was in year eight, decided to beat me half to death and try and throw me off a balcony and kill me, when I told dad he suggestion was we should have a glass of white and and make a few he made a few jokes about it you know uh, i was kind of like dad i'm 13 i don't right. want a glass of white i no. just wanted someone to take this seriously right and he didn't and i'm not hassling for it because that's the times right they were the times and in a way you know there was very much an attitude, just fucking get on with it, stop whinging. So you nearly got beaten to death. You're alive, shut up, have a glass of wine. Do you think what you were talking about before, that we are in the era of, you know, uh, constant self-approval, that we are in that era of, you know, you see the kids on Idol whose parents have never told them that they're not good singers. You know, they think they're the greatest singer in the world. Don't get me started. But do you think that's as a yes, response of the generation that came before? Do you think that we overspoil the yeah, that people of that generation? of overspoiled because they felt like they didn't get that from their parents? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I don't know. I'm no expert on raising kids, but I do worry that there's a generation out there who've been told, you know, um, you are the greatest, most precious gift that was ever given to the earth. And sometimes I long for shame and humiliation to be brought back to the table. <laughs> I think a little bit of that might not go astray. I was house hunting earlier this year looking for somewhere to rent and I was going from place to place and every 90% of places had these kids' bedrooms with with these posters, framed posters on the wall of things like a child is the most important thing that will ever happen and each child is a precious gift from creation. You can never say no to a child and I thought, shit. <laughs> People are crazy. I wanted to replace them with things in exactly the same font in little yeah. things saying, if your child gets out of line, belt it with a saucepan. Hit it on the fucking head occasionally just to, just, just to wind it up, just for no reason whatsoever. Keep them on their toes. Some shit. Keep yeah. them on their toes. Tell them occasionally they're crap at everything. Mate, lock them in a cupboard. They might become Harry Potter. Exactly. But there is, uh, but there or must... Sybil. <laughs> There must be an element of that where because so many people who, you know, uh, particularly in the arts, but like I think in general, a lot of people who you know, are successful or who have done interesting things with their lives 
came out of situations where they had to overcome something rather than it being gifted to them, you know. Is there something in the having to earn it that... that yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, 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 I'm also suspicious of people who bang on about what a hard time they had, you know, because I'm banging on about it now and I think I know guys who just... I, I never got half the shit that a whole lot of other people did and I, I, I don't know that you can excuse... St- I'm just banging on now. So. No, 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 I, 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 I understand what you're saying. But so, I, I do think there's so, a lot what, of kids out there who are going to be terrifyingly, like, were... So uh, let, let me take you back then. So you go, you decide that you're going to be an actor. What what happens <laughs> after that? I like a lot of my ideas, I didn't do much about it. <laughs> I kind of went. Mm. This is what I was trying to get at before about it's not it's not a cut and dried process. The rebellion thing. Yeah. You know, I went. I was quite a rebellious teenager, but when they said, you'll go to uni now, you've got a scholarship and this is what you do and you'll do arts law. I just remember the day my HSC results came out. I was a bit worried because I did most of my HSC totally shit-faced in between jumping in and out of bed with Irene and I fell asleep during my maths exam. I was so out of it and I was thought I might have stacked it right. in a big way. And so I was a bit on tenor hooks when the results were coming out thinking, shit, this could be real bad. Because I'd been a scholarship boy to school and stuff and no matter how much shit I got into, I kind of managed to save it with, all right, well, I'll, I'll do good in the exam this year and that will just get me out of a whole lot of hassle. And, you know, Anyway, my exams came out and my dad's face was like I'd never seen it. He was just like so happy. I think my dad had always wanted to be a lawyer. Right. You know, something professional. He had never had the opportunity. He grew up with, you know, he was one of those Monty Python characters, born in a shoebox and all of that stuff. And he really was. Nothing. And, And so his idea of success was having a kid who could go to law school right and i can imagine it would have made him very proud yeah and so i went okay well i better do this because i don't I, I don't have any alternative ideas at this stage i don't really know and i don't have a lot of confidence in myself i one thing boarding school and institutions do to you generally is, is take away all the decision making this is why i have a problem with jails because once you institutionalise someone, you take away the decision-making processes and people can't think for themselves anymore. And I certainly couldn't. When I came out of boarding school, I was like, I don't know. And, there, and like, I mean, to extend that prison thing, because I have thought about that a bit myself, is you're talking about people who also are probably in there because they're making bad decisions. Yeah. You know, so, they're so you're all, not helping them. You'd make, actually be better off teaching them to make better decisions. Make decisions, exactly. Now there's some people clearly who've made bad decisions on purpose, but like yeah. some other people have literally just made bad decisions. I think if you've made bad decisions on purpose, then you should get executed. But <laughs> there we go. It's <laughs> controversial. Yeah, I do think that, but I think I have complicated ideas on law and order and maybe i shouldn't say them here i'll start sounding like a real lunatic and this I'm, is the right place for it this is like a me. this is a safe space you're allowed to say whatever you want on this podcast well, that's the point of it eventually but but getting out of school i thought i just want to fuck really that's all i really want to do yeah. and there's eighteen thousand people at uni half of them are going to be maybe <laughs> possibilities <laughs> and 
and let me get there now. And if you say I've got to do this, this law thing, right. I'll do it. I yeah. don't know. I don't care. Just, sure. just And I've got scholarship money. I can fuck in between, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that's fine. I'm going to just get It's really not a lot of contact hours, right? No, yeah, I'm fine. Exactly. And they don't <laughs> tick off a roll. They didn't in those no. days. No. Yeah. I went to like two days of lectures and that was that. I just had a real good time. Yeah, I chose my because my I did journalism at uni. It was only six contact hours one week, right. and uh, I chose all my classes. It's the only day when I was at uni that I got up really early. I got up at three in the morning so I could be first in line for the you know choosing the the tutorials and the classes. And I got all my um, classes on a Monday and Tuesday after lunchtime yeah. that was it my six hours yeah. and then the rest of the week was off right it was like i was exactly. so dedicated to the idea that yeah. the rest of the week was off yeah i just wanted to be in the bar right i just went i'll go to the bar and and i'll just i used to go to lectures and i didn't know what they were who they were i just see a pretty girl going into a room <laughs> you just go in there follow her sit down talk to her right. hi what are you doing you Do you came, want a glass of you wine? You came out with a lot of general knowledge. Just mm, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really did. You know, snippets of everything. Yeah, snippets of bits. <laughs> right. You know, wow, that's what physics and chemistry is all about. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> oh, medicine. Can we chop this guy up now? Um, you know, it was a bit like that. And mostly I just stopped going and mostly I just hung around and just drank a lot. And then, I don't know, discovered life, discovered I loved acid. I took a, a heap of it as much as possible. What sort of era is this when you're starting to take acid? 80-something. Yeah, so the early mid-80s, early 80s, late okay. 80s. Yeah, we all, all of us ladies lie about our age. But, <laughs> but, In a general sense. I'm not looking yeah, for specifics, but yeah, I just... Yeah, mid-80s. Yeah. And so I went, this is fun. And... I just proceeded to have as cram as much fun into every day as possible, just like really on a hedonistic, I'm going to do this. Did you uh, do things then that you think opened up your mind to different possibilities in the world or was it just fun at that point? Because I know certainly myself and I can – uh, I won't, again, because we're all going to... I won't timestamp when this happened. Yeah. I had a plausible deniability. You're but, half my age, so you're lucky. You don't have to start lying. No, you. no. Mine's more about uh, when when this experience took place. I'm just going to date it at any time. Yeah. Uh, but I have an acid experience that I um, had that gave me real clarity about something that I was doing in my life that from that day on kind of changed my brain a little bit and actually did you ever have that sort of thing or was it are you talking about pure hedonistic fun maybe i don't want to sound like ben lee here who does but i <laughs> i actually i'm a fan but he talks about this a bit lately and i kind of agree with him but i'm wary of anybody who bangs on about it i think that yeah a few things i learned while completely out of my mind i think everyone in the world should take a hallucinogenic at least five times in their life and it's like plugging your whole being into a rubber band and slingshotting it out into space you can't not learn from that you you really can't i think it's important i think some things yeah i did change i was quite jealous when i was 18 i had a really 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 unbelievably beautiful girlfriend and I was quite jealous and one night when I was an acid, I thought, 
this is hurting you more than it's hurting anybody else. Yeah. And nothing's going to change. She's still going to be fucking smoking in the morning. People are still going to hassle you and try and cut you out of the picture and none of this seething rage and jealousy is helping except to turn her against you. Absolutely. So you need to cut it from your life altogether and it's the greatest piece of advice I ever gave myself, ever, like to this day. I find the amount of times that uh, our initial instinct gets in the way of what is actually we're trying to achieve. and I I, I agree with you, totally. This is really interesting. This seems like a – I remember one night uh, at home uh, we decided to watch – a uh, film together. We were going to watch a film together. We were going to have a nice night and watch a film together. And so we've got a film and mm-hmm. like I lay, like we set up and I sit down on the couch and then she's like up and about and like, you know, you, you know, but I've seen the film. Like I've seen the film before. I've got a film that yeah. sh- she hasn't seen, but I thought she would enjoy. Right. And she's up and about and she's doing things. And like in my head, I'm going, sit down and watch the fucking film. Yeah. Like we were meant to be. I hate this. But she was happy and yeah. she was having a good time. And the whole point of that whole night had been, that we we're, were just going to hang get, out together. Like, I've, I've seen the film. Yeah. Like, I don't need to be concentrating no. on the film. If you're happy getting up and down, but I think in the old days there would have been a part of you that, like, you end up getting in the fight and ruining the whole night. Yeah. And the whole purpose of the night was just to be fun, to have fun, not, yeah. not to watch the movie. Mm. Yeah, I know. Unless, I don't know, unless you were with my sister who watches movies like that and it drives me mental. Well, that, no, that would drive me mental. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that people should get saying. up and down while yeah. I'm watching movies with no, them. No, that but, will drive but me crazy. You've got to go with some shit, you know. And I think that about I think getting rid of jealousy was probably acid related, and I think it's the best thing I ever did in my life because I think it's I occasionally struggle with that. And it, jealousy is a useless emotion. Yeah, it is, and I see a lot of shit happen because of it. And I think, oh, have you ever been professionally jealous? Yeah. And the times I am are the times I hate myself most. Mm. And that's really when I go, you're a dick. Right. Get up tomorrow, try not to be a dick. Much better nowadays. For a while there, it's hard. It's hard not to be some days. You do feel, it's hard not to feel sorry for yourself no matter who you are, you know. Of course. And if you're not doing so well sometimes, think... When I left the MGF, I was quite in a bad place and I struggled with it a bit then. I struggled with everybody else is doing really well and I'm in shit and I'm not going anywhere and life's crap and everybody's out to get me. And I think that was a bad time of my life. How, how do you get through a bad time like that? So everyone gets to a bad time like that, but, like, did you have any strategy for getting through that or did you just have to go through it? Like, were you aware that you were going through that or were you yeah, so in the middle yeah. of it that... I was bitter and angry and twisted and, God, I sound like something on, a, on an Oprah. <laughs> um, everyone check under your chair. You all yeah. get a free car. <laughs> you get a car yeah. and you get a car. Well, I don't know. You have to go at times like that. You go, what makes you happy? Come on, sit here. What makes you happy? Write, write it, don't write it down. You really are turning mad. But find out what makes you happy. What do you want to do? What, what gives you – what stops you thinking about all the negative shit? And if you can find that one thing, then do it a bit. Well, what is that thing case, for you? It's always been music. And I just started making music again 
but you have to find out what sort of music and who with and all of that stuff and why you're doing it, you know. Oh, God, I'm getting heavy here. But it it's as simple as just go do the thing you like. Uh, all right. Um, so uh, you, you get to university. Do you finish university? No. No, not really. I just... I kind of wanted to stay there forever and would have, but a few things happened. I applied to stay on and keep going and and the head of the course, whose name was Dame Leonie Kramer, remember her, famous right-wing fascist person, took me by the hand one day and said, you should go and do something with your life. I really got on very well with her. This is mm-hmm. a strange story. She had no reason to like me. I was just this idiot who... And I was always wearing pyjamas. That's all I wore for a couple of years. I just wore pyjamas, no shoes, wandered around. If I, if I saw me now, I would dislike me on sight. But, but I lived in, uh, uh, in pyjamas. I always wore pyjamas. Occasionally I turned up. I was always staggering around the bar. But I had her for one of my course teachers. She ended up running the whole uni. And I think she was not far off that in those days. And she took me by the hand one day and said, I'm expelling you from here. I I think you should go away and do something. I know. (laughs) That sounds like a bad idea. And so I went and worked in a factory and got a job. Uh, actually out where my dad worked, just doing, putting bottles into cartons all day long. Well, that's interesting. You kind of imagined that that's where you were going to go back to though, right? The bottle factory. Oh, I didn't care. I you just, just didn't care. Is that I, what it was? You just didn't care? I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I didn't, I had a very, very hardcore distrust of anybody who was all about money. And so I was sort of like, well, I want to be some businessman. I was like that, you know. I was yeah. just taking a lot of acid, you know. Right. I was like, whoa, <laughs> stick it to the man. Yeah. Go work I'm wearing in a factory. Pajamas. I'm, I'm wearing work pajamas. A I'm wearing in a factory and I've dyed my hair different colours and I am on it, man. I was like on it. And I really was. And I would go out at nights and then have like half an hour's sleep and then go home and get up and go to work and pack bottles and I was, yeah. And, of course, the inevitable happened. Uh, I Two things happened. I got really sick, collapsed one day and ended up in intensive care at St George Hospital and my mum turned up and I hadn't seen her for a while and she turned up. I don't know how she even knew I was there. I must have figured out who I was and r- rang around. Anyway, she turned up and got me and... I'll never forget it. I was on a drip. And she said, well, get that thing out of your arm and get out of here. <laughs> okay. okay. You can see I was a pretty compliant sort of son. I went, all right, all. She put me in the car and took me home, put me in the backyard, and she yeah. fed me this red shit, which I've never seen before or since. It was like a jelly. It was a true story. Oh, Looking at me like, this guy's nuts. <laughs> but she did. It was like red. I don't know what it was. It was like a red jelly, but paler. Right. And she fed me a lot of it. And I observed her, and she was as funny as hell. She just made me laugh every day. I was about four stone. I was kind of dying of poisoned insides. Right. And, and I figured out 
I must have been 20 or so, 19, and I worked out that she had been forced into playing the role of bad policeman, and I'd never got that. Right, she'd had to be bad cop because your dad was so naturally good cop. Yeah. Like your dad was like the life of the party. He was hilarious. He was great and he was never going to confront you with anything bad. Yeah. But I watched her and I watched him because I couldn't move. I was stuck on this day bed out in the backyard and – and I watched while he nagged her all week about, you know, when David or Christopher or whatever other son they were talking about, when he turns up on Sunday, we've got to say to him, no, you can't do this and you can't go and check up with whoever you want. You've got to do this and you've got to live. And he'd be at her all week. And then on the weekend, the sibling above named would turn up maybe for be summoned for lunch and they'd turn up and mum would say, now listen, you can't just do A, B and C. And that sibling would arc up. And my dad would go, yeah, well, you're being a bit hard on him, you know. <laughs> and I would sit there and go, what? <laughs> you bastard, you just, you've been at her about this all week. Need, but that's, you know, wants to be the good guy. And people have those personalities. Yeah, and it seems remarkably dumb now, and it is. But 19 years it took me to go, oh, my God, I get how families work. Wow, really? I just thought she was a nasty policeman because she was into it. And she's actually not. She's just got the guts. She's got guts and strength and fire and she stands up for what she believes in. She has no backup here and this is shit. And I got quite, I don't know, I did my head in. Uh, And then she nursed me back to health and I went back to the factory and I got sacked the first day. (laughs) (laughs) And... We're told I wasn't welcome there or whatever, and that was a bit of a blow. And then I was unemployed and messy, and I didn't know what to do with my life. And then I heard through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend... No, a friend's mother told me that there might be a job going at a television production company. They couldn't tell me what doing what. They just said there might be a job going there. Yeah. I thought, oh, I like TV. Right, and I'd always written things. So it kind of, this sounds so boring, but I really wanted to be a poet. But uh, there were no jobs in the paper ever that no. said poet needed. No. And I was writing all this bad poetry. I mean, I'm ashamed of it now, but I was writing a lot of poetry and listening to music. And I was just obsessed with music. I was playing in one or two bands, but I was the worst keyboard player in Sydney. <laughs> and... So, because had you had a musical background at all? Were you encouraged, you know, around music as a no. child, or was that literally just something you discovered when you're, you know, an adult? Ah, uh, my dad's family, both sides, both sides were obsessed with music. It's complicated because my dad came from a Salvation Army background, and so the salvos were like, you know, always banging drums and well, tambourines, on. yeah, <laughs> and came from a long line of great piano players and. Mum's mum was very... They were just obsessed with music and there was always music playing in the house. Because I had... It was a big family of kids. Whenever you sang or danced or did anything, there were seven people to put shit on you. Right. So you just didn't because oh, you'd get shit put on right. you. Right. So it's a weird double barrel shotgun. It's like, you know, give you this, take, take that. And so I'm doing hand movements, which is silly on a podcast. But... I never dreamed that I would ever do anything like that because 
I'd just been told endlessly, you can't sing, you can't dance, and besides, if you do, we're going to all put shit on you. And so you go, all right. And I kind of got into my head that you leave that sort of thing to people who are really great at it naturally, you know, like... I think a lot of people think that, though. Like, a lot of people think that, mm. that you've got to be something special. You've got to, like, you know... Yeah. Those things are only people who are wonderful and talented and special. Yeah, and yeah. So how do you get from a place where you think, well, I'm never going to do this because people will hang shit on me to actually, you know, even just playing in some bands, you know, as Sydney's worst keyboard player? I was obsessed with bands and I was spending every dollar I had going out all night, every night, seeing every band in Sydney. And I used to go and see a band called Silk and the Slattens and they were a disco covers band. Right. <laughs> which sounds incredibly daggy, but there weren't that many in those days. Like, right. There just wasn't. And they were kind of cool. They played really cool. They did a 60s set and a 70s set. And I loved that music. Yep. And I loved dancing. I just loved it. So I used to go once a week and see them or twice a week and dance all night and be that guy. <laughs> and, and one night the lead singer said, somebody told me you can play keyboards. And I went, yeah. Thinking, I don't know, I'm boozed. I can do everything. Maybe I can. Maybe I can. And she went, All right, well, we need a new keyboardist. So I turn up on Tuesday night rehearsal. And I went, Okay, yeah, sure. And then had to just beg everyone I knew Does anybody know anyone who's got a keyboard? Like, I don't know anyone who's got a keyboard, and I certainly can't afford one because I have a job. So I just borrowed this girl's keyboard who I hardly knew. And if she's out there listening, I. I think your name was Shanti someone and you're a friend of my then girlfriend's and you loaned me a JX8P, which was probably a really, really expensive synth. And I turned up and I started playing keyboards for this band and someone else said, do you want to play keyboards for us? Which is really weird because I really was genuinely the worst keyboard player in the whole of the world. And I was really shy and really self-conscious and I used to stand up the back of stage and just bury my head down and, and just sweat all the way through the gig but it was a conduit to women and so i stuck at it through (laughs) so again like sex played a big part in that right like i mean of course when you're playing in you know bands around town part of that's got to be about you know the appeal of that lifestyle yes yeah i'm gonna go out on a limb and i could be completely telling a lie but i just was so in love with music I just loved it. I loved the songs. I loved the music. I loved the feeling of being in a room. Like, I love rehearsals. I love rehearsals. And there's no women at rehearsals and no crowd. But I just love it. To this day, I just have been a bit down the last couple of months. And two weeks ago, I took myself off to Melbourne and hooked up with some friends. And we rehearsed for a weekend for no particular reason except that I said, let's book a rehearsal room. And I came back couldn't sleep for three nights i was so excited and happy it just does something to me so even being petrified up the back of the in fact gigs never really did it for me in those days because i was frightened right oh my god i can't do this i don't know what a i just not a very good keyboard player terrible so what happens next how long are you banging around doing that and you know when do things start to change for you i went into television i got this tv gig and I got a job as a photocopier and drinks maker. I had to make gin and tonics right. for a TV producer. 
<laughs> Back in the day, that was a job. That was, that, that, was, that was my job. That was it. It was like we're going to hire you for three months. And I had ostensibly some job descriptions. Right. I had to collate the scripts and staple them and photocopy them and unstaple them and all of that stuff. But mostly it, the only time she ever got upset with me was when I didn't put enough gin in the gin and tonic. It's like... <laughs> And I became unbelievable at making gin and tonics. And then, <laughs> and then oh, don't get me sued over this, but without naming any names at all, uh, my boss had a kind of a breakdown and I, and I kind of drifted into doing things that I had no qualifications whatsoever doing, mm. which is how the television industry in Australia runs and yes. the film industry. When you write, write a script for television, there are... Uh, at least six people who have never written a script before and who've never even seen a TV and who are completely <laughs> stupid and mostly, uh, like, retarded and they have the job of making notes on your script. And I became one of them. It was like, oh, this is good. This is right. <laughs> You just tell other people. It's amazing. It's like if... It's the only thing I can compare it to is if doctors, if, if doctors were trained by people who'd never done medicine or, in right. fact, even heard of medicine. And every single time they did an operation, even now, they were told what to do by six people who'd never done it before. It wouldn't work. And that's why a lot of television doesn't work. Cause <laughs> Too many people get in the way who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But luckily, that's how I got my brain. Yeah, right. <laughs> At one stage, you were one of those people. Yeah, I was one of those yeah. people. And, and I met a few script writers for TV and I really liked what they did. They were noble people and good people, some of them, and they were hard workers who wanted to, to write. And I went, wow, you might be able to do that one day if you work at it. And that has been something that you have done since then, yes? Yeah. Really? Very Consist- of success. What's uh, of the things that you have written? Tell me, uh, oh, well, tell me this one. I want to do the positive. What's the thing that you're most proud of that, you, that you've written, do you think? I did a show. It's hard to say. I mean, I liked Love is a Four Letter Word. I thought that was a good show. I thought it was the, a flawed show, but it was a forerunner to a whole lot of imitation shows. Right. You see, if you look at what happened since then. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of shows that, yeah. you know, when, oh, it certainly had a, a touch of, you know, that Velvet Underground gig that everybody was out yeah. and went and formed their own band. Yeah, it was a bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah, occasionally. I loved working on a show called Medivac. Um, I think that's my favourite thing I've ever done. And it was done, it was a medical drama and it was on Channel 10 and nobody was watching it. Right. Made by a crazy guy in Queensland called Tony Kavanagh, and and the network was in the middle of being sold, so nobody really had their eye on the ball. Right, there was no real. And Tone went, "Okay, it's not rating great. I'm gonna complete." It was kind of like an old saints sort of show for the first eleven, twelve, fifteen episodes, and then he went, "Okay, I'm gonna make it a water cooler show where it's so out there that people on the Monday morning go, did you see Medivac? Right. So in one, so I got a call. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, do you want to come and help do this show? A really a writer who I was, 
who was my mentor, I guess, a guy called Keith Aberdeen, rang me up and said, hey, do you want to reinvent this show? Or I'm going to reinvent it. Do you want to write one? I went, yeah, okay. So one week, if you've ever seen like things like All Saints or, or, or I don't know, Grey's Anatomy, it was like that one week, I do this episode where it opens up with two kids killing a guy, two teenage kids killing a guy in the bank in, in cold blood and then driving away after the bank robbery and they uh, go, they, they drive off through a building site and he gets reinforcing steel through his head and it shifts his brain and turns him into a Christian. <laughs> but But she... Hates him for that, so she tries for the rest of the for the script to kill him because she can't stand the fact that her hardcore street kid boyfriend has become a Christian, and he recites the Desiderata for the whole rest of the hour, but gets all the words screwed up, and she runs around trying to find a gun, and and then there's this this security guard who's on his first day at the hospital and he's having an existential crisis and she ends up stealing his gun, shooting her boyfriend. She gets shot by someone else. She gets impaled on the reinforcing rod. He utters the last prayer. It's just like we just went mad. We went completely crazy. It's a great episode of TV if you ever seen it. Wow. Who was in Medivac? Like who... Who were the like? There must have been some big star or something. Yeah, you know, those series normally. Genevieve Pico right. and uh, Lisa Forrest and Dieter Brummer and a whole bunch of weird people. What happens to like Dieter Brummer on the day where like he's doing an All Saints style show and then your script turns up? Well, it's funny you should say that because Dieter came in in series three, by which time I was the producer, right. one of the producers of the show, the main script guy, yeah. and series three never got aired. Right. <laughs> it was just deemed no. We've gone too far. I did it been, was it being made though? Like, was it made? Yeah, yeah. So, is there episodes of Medivac somewhere that no one somewhere has ever in seen? A vault. Yeah, I did the one episode that did get oh screened God. was the exorcism episode, which I also wrote, wherein <laughs> God and the devil fought it out in the corridor of the hospital over the body of a naked nun, played by Lisa Forrest, and God admitted that he had long ago ceded this territory, it being the earth, to the devil in the ongoing struggle between the forces of good and evil. And in fact, this was the devil's patch. And that was the surprise reveal towards the end. And it ended with a nun doing unspeakable things on camera. And the Courier-Mail wrote a a long piece, which I had up until a few years ago, and I lost it in a drunken move. And and it said, this person, whoever he is, should never be allowed to write television ever again. Just stop now. Just stop. And, and the ratings never improved much. And we abandoned it all kind of... I don't think people knew that it was getting so crazy. Every that now was the and problem. then if I I'd get known. letters still to this day from hardcore medivac freaks, who most of whom are dead or in prison, but they write to me and go, hey... Hey, did I dream it or was that right. real? And can you bring it back? Yeah, is it well, ever again? Hey, can you send back? me one of those secret episodes? Yeah, yeah. Some of which I had for a while. Well, because I mean, I had that actual experience uh, with a television, as a consumer, with a television show called Chances, which started much weirder anyway. But there was a point in that where it got absolutely crazy. And I, I, me and my uni friends were obsessed with it. 
Keith Aberdeen did Chances and oh, he okay. was the guy that did... <laughs> Who brought you in. Brought so. me into Medivac yeah. and he was the genius behind Chances. And I still think Chances is the best TV ever made oh, in this like, country. There was, the nuns, there was a the, couple of series the, of that that were unmissable. Yeah. Unmissable. The, the nuns with the rights to Stairway to Heaven being chased <laughs> by Jeremy Sims was maybe the greatest storyline to this day ever thought up. Uh, all the way to the Vatican, <laughs> the stairway to heaven. Right. So I don't know if you remember that bit, but that blew my mind. Oh, man. And so many great people in it. Michael Caton and, and all sorts of people got into those shows. And, yeah, I loved that. But you only get that rare chance, what probably once in your life, where the perfect storm happens, where A, they're desperate, B, nobody's really watching, C, somebody's taking their hand off the steering wheel. It's like, call in the freaks, and the freaks get the call. And then, and then I was working on that in 96, 97, and I had a heart attack. That was my first big health thing. I had a heart attack. So Plane. You had a I heart attack. I promised to tell you this story last time I spoke I know. to you by email. And I thought it might be a good one. Yeah, I was... It's, it's a funny story. I was, I was working on a feature film, uh, which is the greatest mistake I've ever made in my life. I, I took a job uh, rewriting a feature film that had been done... Re- it had been written and thought up by someone else. And another writer, and it actually been developed at this production company while I was there, and then I'd left in a half and just quit and gone out as a freelance writer. And about a year later, I got a call saying, do you want to write this romantic comedy about a oh. young girl who who was obsessed with Princess Diana? And I went, oh, I don't know, what happened to your other writer? And... <laughs> They went, well, well, she's she's not on the show anymore. She quit sort of thing. And I went, all right. And they, she hadn't quit. And this is all a bit libelous, so I might not be able to don't say need to too go, much don't, detail. D- you know, you can just... Uh, Suffice it to say, it yep. was a dumb shit decision. I took the gig as a, as a writer on a feature film. And I've got to tell you this story, and I'm trying to tell it in the right order. 96, I worked on this film, mm-hmm. and it was a little romantic comedy about a girl from Wollongong who goes over to chase Princess Diana around to try and meet her, and she hooks up with a paparazzi photographer, and they spend a delightful amount of time driving around fast in cars following Princess Diana, and she falls in love with the paparazzi guy. Right. Funny little idea for a romantic comedy. Yeah, that's... Should have been cute. I mean, yeah. You know? Should have yeah. been a sweet little film. Right. There are a few problems. Yeah. At that stage, I didn't know how to write a script, so right. I don't know what I was doing. That's a problem. I had no idea. That That's is a one problem. problem. Yep. So the script's sort of shit. Yep. The property attracted some big names, and so more money got poured in, so more people get poured in. So there's 1,500 people going, no, it should be about this, it should be about this, you know, blah, 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 blah. One producer who was on it, who is now a very, very, very rich man in America, I've still got a fax from him saying, look, dickhead, no one knows who Princess Diana is. No one gives a fuck. It's got to be Mick Jagger. <laughs> and I've kept that because I just think that's great. And, and so 
I had a lot of that. I was getting notes from people around the world. You just you got no idea how it all snowballs out of control. You're right. getting notes from you like you're getting twenty pages of notes on a script from someone whose name you've never seen before and you go, Who's this? And they go and people can't even answer. No. Dunno, but he could be the son of the garbage. I believe he's the guy who makes gin and tonics for the boss. So. He's, he's the guy whose father is in waste management in New Jersey right. who has put 300 yeah. grand into this film. Right. Maybe you should take those notes quite yeah. seriously. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. We tend to go with all his decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This really happens. Yeah. They're now chasing a puppy. I know. So you're going, oh, shit. So that was 96. I went and did that. Yeah. I was over in – I was over shooting it in – England and I didn't get on with anybody much and it was just a disaster and things went to shit and I won't talk about it because I'll get sued by everybody but I came back and I was doing then Medivac this TV show in Queensland and flying back and forth to Melbourne to see cuts of the Diana film and working full on and also I'm a freelance writing slut so I was doing a lot of other stuff and and I'd start, I, I've always tinkered with music, so I was probably doing some music stuff. Anyway, I wasn't sleeping. I was doing a lot of drugs and booze and having as much fun as possible. And one day, one night, Friday, I was flying back to Sydney to my house and I got on the plane and I thought, I'm having a heart attack. And then I thought... Oh, and so you immediately thought that's what it was? It was the... It was the first thought that pain. came. It was so painful. Right. It was like, I'm hurting okay. and it's coming from my heart. Ah. I wonder what that <laughs> could be. <laughs> I wonder if they have a name for this. Yeah. I've been writing on a medical drama. I think I can identify <laughs> the symptoms. Well, yes and no, but I thought, I'm 32 years old. This can't be happening. Right. Too young. Yeah. And, you know, never mind that my dad has had the record number of heart bypasses in the world, but I'm sure there's no link. Right. And never mind this, the this fact... This sort of thing isn't hereditary, is yeah, it? I'm pretty sure. Never mind the fact that I've slept about for 20 minutes a, a night for the last two years. Um, I'll just... I'll just it must be just indigestion, yep. except I haven't eaten anything. So that's mm. pretty weird. I wonder what I'm <laughs> digesting. Anyway, this is a measure of the person who I was raised to be. I didn't want to make a fuss. No. So about was, your heart attack? Yeah, so I sat on the plane. <laughs> so hang on, so you'd just sit down? When did you feel like, when did your heart start hurting in the as, journey? As the plane was taxiing off the runway. Right, okay. So I thought, shit, this is a flight from Brisbane to Sydney. Yeah. It's Friday. You're going to be really an hour, an hour and a half on a plane minimum. Yeah, and I'm going to, I think this is bad. But I better not make a fuss. No. Because that's not the person I am. No, I don't no. want to make a fuss. Let's hold on until we're up Let's in the air. Hold on to <laughs> There's much better options once we're in space. <laughs> they can that. do nothing about me down on the ground <laughs> near hospitals. No, I just thought, oh, don't cause anyone any hassle. It's very embarrassing. This right. is embarrassing. This is what I mean by bring back shame and humiliation. The yeah. world would be a bit of a weirder, but more interesting place because I just thought, don't hassle anybody. Uh huh. Just sit tight. You'll be landing soon. And it got heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And I got to the Sydney and I got a cab home and came in. And my girlfriend at the time 
said, I'm going out, I've got stuff on, blah, blah, blah. She was doing stuff. I said, oh, that's good. I think I'm going to come. I think I might be having a heart attack. She went, yeah, yeah, you look really pale. I've got to go. See you, sweetie. Love you, bye. <laughs> raced out the door. So I think because in those days, who knew? Right. Like, he's always something oh, yeah. going on. Uh, he reckons he's, got a, he reckons he's having oh, a heart attack now. Yeah, good one. Yeah. So she had to race. <laughs> mate of mine said to me, do you want to go over to the park? This is a this is <laughs> because Air Force One's coming in tonight. Bill Clinton's coming in, right? And on Air Force One, and we were living in Petersham, yeah. and he went, "We'll see it go over." We see every other fucking plane. I bet we see Air Force right. One. And I thought, who gives a shit? I don't care about Air Force One, but Some I think do. I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. So I went, okay, I'll get a six-pack and some ciggies because in oh, those no. days I was quite a heavy smoker Yeah, as no, well. no. Well, that, so that's good for your heart. I bought a couple of packets of cigarettes and a case of beer and we went and sat in a park in mm. Petersham waiting for Air Force One to come over. Right. <laughs> and as you do, that's, you know, it's in the medical dictionary. Yeah, and that's, then, that's, that, that's the first thing they recommend. <laughs> grab yourself. Grab the ciggies grab, and the six-pack. Get a carton if you can. Yeah, yeah. But a six-pack will do in case of emergency. Yeah, yeah. Well, we weren't far from the bot low, so mm. I could get more if I needed. Right, well, that's good. But every now and then we're chatting and I'd go and sort of almost black out for yeah, a while. because you were having a heart go, attack. Are you okay? And I'd go, I think I'm having a heart, heart attack. attack. But surely if I was having a heart attack, you know, I've seen TV and movies. Yeah, And this is the them. big thing I've learnt. Mm. Life's not like it is on the telly. And no. I, I've, I still don't get that some days. So right. I kept thinking if I was having a heart attack, I would have killed over by now and there would be ambulances. This has been going on for hours. Yeah. I've and never then, seen an episode of a TV show where somebody for hours just walks around going, yeah. I think I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. Cool, let's go to the park. I think I'm having a heart attack. Exactly. Oh, well, I've got to go. That's exactly not how it right. works. Exactly right. So I thought, oh, fuck it. Who cares? So I'll just – and Friday night. You right. can imagine what the emergency – I mean, I don't want to be – it's going to be full of people. It's going to be full of people. And I've Having medical working. emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been working all week and right. I'm not sitting in casualty no. for four hours. Clutching my chest, no, and saying yes, it's when I can, when it I, is radiating down my left arm. When I can, when yeah. I can sit in a park and do the same thing, yeah, and maybe catch maybe a glimpse Air Force of One. Air Force One. So, so we sat there and talked, and I don't remember what we talked about mostly because I kept saying, "I think going I'm having a heart attack." on the park bench. I mean, this might come back to you having a face that sometimes, when you're being serious, yeah. people think you're taking the piss. Maybe, but I. Even myself, I looked at my face and thought, you know, you're just... No, nah, nah. But I went home and I just got this thing that I was trying to get my head around. I was mm. obsessed in the early days with a thing called the internet and I was mad for it. I, I was one of those geeks who got the first 14K modem and, right. and it was the size of this table and I, uh, and I got into chat rooms and stuff and I had geeky friends who were into it and I was thought this could... Be something one right. day. Right, it's pity it never caught on. This might, this might, this, this internet thing might catch on. Yeah, this all, World Wide Web. All my geeky friends put money into it and, uh, yep. and now own, you know, the west coast of America. But, <laughs> but I'm sitting here anyway. I got on the dial-up modem and I started asking people about heart attack symptoms yep. and checking them off. Yeah, got that. Yeah, got that. Yeah, got that. Yeah, shit. Yeah, gee. And then got off the internet and thought, wow, I better take some Panadine Fort and have another beer. <laughs> and 
and see if I can ride this one out because this doesn't sound good. This sounds bad. And by then I was pretty wasted, you know. I had quite a few. Right. I thought, oh, fuck it. If it is a heart attack, what can I do now? It's not doing any more damage now than it was doing five hours ago when it started. Yeah, I'm too fucked to drive now. So, (laughs) so bugger it. That's... Anyway, I went to bed. Yep. I slept for a little while and I woke up and thought, nah, this is not working. This is really hurting. This is really, really hurting. I think this is really happening. I better have a shave and a shower and put a clean shirt on, look your best. That's one of my other mottos. You know, smarten yourself up a bit. If you're going to go in public, try and look nice. So I went and I remember doing all that very deliberately, thinking I've got to look my best and what will I wear and taking ages to decide. Do I wear the cravat? Do I wear this? Do I wear that? I love that jacket. I'll wear that jacket. Fuck, this is happening. <laughs> and then got in the car, which is a bit naughty, but I lived not far from RPA and I drove up to RPA and it's one of the only times I've ever driven a bit shit-faced in my life. And I drove up there and I thought, oh, I better park it somewhere. This is no bullshit. I thought I better park it somewhere where... If I die, they won't get a big fine. The girl won't get fined if she doesn't find the car till Tuesday. So I'm looking everywhere for like a not two hour, like I can hang here. (laughs) Finally found a car space. Anyway, the next thing I knew, I staggered into emergency and dropped dead on the floor, which is a really beautiful sense of timing just But you did, you you just got there and I got there and the guy behind the triage desk said what are your symptoms, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I've got this chest pain. And he asked me a few questions. And he, I remember him vaguely, remember him saying something like, do you have a Medicare card or something like that? And I just went, bang, and hit the screen with my head and slid down the thing and everything just went black or white or whatever colour it goes. And then I woke up in the emergency ward just with a lot of people shining lights at me and tubes and wires coming out everywhere and that guy going, you know, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And me going, of course I know who I am. God, what sort of a question? That's a heavy question to lay on me because who does know who they are? Well, I mean, I started this podcast with them. So. <laughs> the horror, the memories. <laughs> the flashbacks. But yeah, and I remember saying, this is the last part of the story I'll tell, but I remember saying... I need to make a phone call. And he went, no, well, you don't. We think you've had a heart attack. And I went, oh, in that case, I need to make a couple of phone calls. And he went, what do you do for a living? And I said, I work in the television industry. And he went, without missing a beat, how much cocaine have you been taking? (laughs) Just like that. And I went, not that much. In a sort of a real high school whiny, not that much. still remember that. And then went, (gasps) And my head hit the pillow, and that was that. And I thought, oh, fuck. Did you, did you technically die? No, I don't know. I don't think so. They said that I'd had a thing called pericarditis, which is a virus which shuts down the heart. It gets into the heart muscle around the heart and induces a heart attack from, from a viral perspective, which, which is a fairly heavy one. But... Nobody was quite sure what had happened and, and I didn't get a lot of lasting heart um, scarring, which was kind of cool. What did happen is that I got put in the heart ward for two weeks 
and this might be pertinent to your podcast because I I was kept under observation in the heart wing and in there you get put in with a bunch of overweight aging guys and you and women and you wear a heart monitor portable one around your neck at all times and you're wired up so that they can keep everybody's stats observed excuse me and they the first few days you're so out of it you don't know what you're doing you're just off the chart and it's all like is he going to make it is he not going to make it is he going to be all right everybody's being monitored for you know what's happening after a few days, you get a bit better and you kind of come to and you see what's going on. You make friends with the people around you and you you have all your stats up everywhere all the time. And what we used to do is take bets on people coming in. Just kind right. of look at this. It's like being in a TAB. It's just <laughs> like, oh, look, bed four, bed four, ward three. Have a look at this guy. Holy shit. Wow. I'll give you 40 bucks. He's not going to go through. He's not going to go through. I'll give you 45 bucks. And it's just this betting shop. And then, and then you're all down on your walkers and stuff looking around the room, going, looking at this guy. I put this in a film script which never got made because nobody would believe it. But... That's what I did for a couple of weeks, bet on people's lives and death. Uh, we need to finish this up in a minute because right. I'm running out of uh, recording space. That's cool. literally why. I've got four minutes left. But before we get to that, and I, we might not have time to okay. get right through this, but we share something in common in that, like, uh, well, not quite in common. I have osteoarthritis and you have rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. which is a, quite a debilitating uh, thing. Does it affect your life in, in big ways? Yeah, I did give up booze. And drugs and everything else. Uh, oh, well, not everything else. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God, not everything else. There's a vice <laughs> left to me. But, but I had to give up alcohol and drugs and change the way I live. And how did you feel about having to do that? Were you, was that like you, were you ready to do that? No. Or was, you, you didn't want to do that? No. Well, I've only ever done stand-up comedy once in my life and that was for two weeks at last year's Melbourne um, Fringe Festival I decided to go and do Stand up I got talked into it By someone And so I booked a show Which was one hour a night For two weeks And I've since learned That that's not how You launch a stand up career You know Five minutes here Five minutes And you build it up Yeah I just went Until oh, you got it. an hour Book me two weeks <laughs> And an hour a night And I'll go do it And Three weeks before which is when I was going to sit around, kick around some ideas as to what that hour might consist of and what I might talk about and maybe write a bit of a show, they put me on a really heavy slate of drugs, which the main side effect was they took away my sense of humour completely. Right. And I couldn't stand up because my hip had gone out. Right, so, so you couldn't stand up or be funny. Yeah, I know. Like <laughs> the, really. two, the two main ingredients of the job. It was amazing. The only two things you had to do. So it affected me. We could tape over a whole bunch of shit if you We can't to. tape over shit because oh. I taped Adam's interview on this same thing and it only has oh. three and a half hours and that's what we've done now. Oh, right. Not you and I, Bummer. between I Adam like and we're I. Barely getting started. I feel like we're barely getting started. We're yeah. going to have to do it again. Yeah. We can just do a part two at some stage. I'd love to do a part two. Yeah, all right. So thank you very much, Pinky Beecroft, for being part of this. Thanks for the finger bun that we then just had next to us. We should at least eat some of it when... We'll finish with some finger bun. Yeah. We started with finger banging. We'll finger finish bun with funga, finger bun. Mm, it's good. See? Yeah, it's a pretty tasty. Oh, it's nice. Oh, it's nice. Mm. <laughs>